0: You know, at the end, after doing it, you know, I was like, I would not even want to go back here with one of my friends if he drew the tag. And now, six months removed, I hope one of my friends draws that again because we're going to go, we're going to go, you know, just kick that mountain's ass.
1: Welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast presented by Exo Mountain Gear. This podcast and the gear that we produce at XO Mountain Gear share the same purpose, to make you a more capable, confident, and successful backcountry hunter. This show is all about providing you with valuable information from experienced hunters. To learn more about the podcast or about our backcountry hunting packs, visit exomountaingear.com. Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Hunter podcast, and thanks so much for tuning in. Our guest on this episode is Darren Cooper, and he was previously a guest back in episode 123 when we kind of nerded out on broadhead flight. That was a super technical episode that got into arrows and fletching and broadhead setups and accuracy. Darren's back, uh, but this time... This engineer that Darren is, is not here to talk technicalities. He's here to talk about an amazing experience he had this fall when he drew a sheep tag in Idaho and the adventure that unfolded with making that hunt come to be. So I almost broke this one up into two episodes because it's an hour and 20 minutes or so of conversation with Darren. And there really is kind of like the pre-hunt discussion and then the story of the hunt itself. So if you need to break it up into two episodes, definitely do that. Definitely stay tuned through the whole thing, though. There's so much good information in here. If you, like me, uh, want to hunt sheep one day but don't know when that's going to happen, or maybe you think sheep hunting is never going to happen for you. Number one, it can, and we talk a little bit about that. But number two, everything in this episode is not sheep-specific. There's so much that you can apply to to your hunts, to your adventures, I mean, we hit it all from scouting to gear to mindset to just the ups and downs of the backcountry. Man, this is such a good one. So thank you guys for tuning in. Real quick, before we do dive into this discussion with Darren, I want to give a shout out to Anthony P for the iTunes review. Anthony, we want to send you some Exo Mountain Gear and Hunt Backcountry podcast swag. So send us your shipping information. And listeners, if you want to enter into these giveaways, just leave us a review on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever else you listen to this podcast, or just email us your feedback directly to podcast at exomountgear.com. All right, here's this great conversation with Darren Cooper. Darren, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us.
0: Thanks, Mark. Steve, yeah. good to be with you guys. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate, you appreciate back having
1: you on, man. man. It's always, uh, always a wealth of information for sure. Yeah. So the, the first episode we had with you is back 123 and we talked a bunch about Broadhead flight. And that's a, not only was a good episode to have, but a good resource to go back to. So that if you guys listeners haven't checked that out, definitely go back and listen to that one. And we kind of got more of your background in that, Darren, but just kind of the quick one to two minute, like, who are you type thing just in case people haven't heard that and uh just to give some context here
0: okay um let's see uh a lot of people know me from uh writing for for uh western hunter magazine and uh eastman's bow hunting and Rockslide. um i've kind of been writing articles and whatnot for probably the last probably 15 years now um and that kind of started from uh my former career as a as a archery engineer designing products for hoit archery and then uh, also being a uh, professional shooter on uh, primarily the target archery side i shot a little bit of 3d early in my career but mostly just uh you know target archery and, and field archery specifically was kind of my my favorite forte there but um so yeah
1: cool man so we want to talk today about uh an opportunity you had this past fall in twenty eighteen to hunt uh Bighorn there in Idaho. Um it's so much that so much to cover. It was an adventurous hunt for sure. And uh but before we dive into that, I just want to hear more about the logistics in terms of you actually drawing that. Um how long have you been putting in for that?
0: Yeah, so I've been putting in for uh, bighorn sheep for a number of years. I mean, I'm not a spring chicken. I'm what 47 now, I guess. So I kind of saw the writing on the wall, you know, maybe 15 years ago that I needed to start drawing some of these backcountry, you know, difficult, you know, sheep hunts. Because I had a I had a knee surgery back in like 2008, and I'm like, man, this is taking a little little bit out of me. You know, for a while I felt pretty invincible, and then stuff like that happens, and you start realizing uh you know the inevitable future and and it's like man i really want to kill a ram so uh started applying you know off and on for the first couple years you know it's kind of tough to give it in idaho uh, for those listeners that don't know if you apply for sheep you're not eligible to apply for the draw hunts for deer elk and antelope so you can pick sheep or goat or moose one of those species to put in for, or you can put in for deer, elk and antelope. And so, you know, there's always a good, good hunt that you want to put in for, for deer, elk or antelope or a new hunt or something like that, that, that kind of pulls you, pulls you and your buddies are drawing these great tags. But, um, I started about 15 years ago when I was actually a non-resident living in Utah, working for Hoyt. And, um, you know, I missed a couple years here and there, but, uh, I think I figured out that I'd put in for twelve years when I finally drew this past this past year.
1: Hmm. And it's you're not collecting points in that time; like it's straight lottery,
0: it's straight up draw odds in yeah. Idaho. There's no
1: there's no points for
0: for uh, for sheep, moose, and goat, which is really fortunate because uh, you know there's no state that gives enough tags to really make a bonus point system work right. for those species. And so um, I'm really thankful that Idaho has stayed out of that game. Um, It really stacks the deck against uh, new hunters that are coming into the sport. It stacks the deck against kids that, you know, are eligible to hunt at 12 or whatever. You know, if there's the bonus point levels at 20 for, you know, say, bighorn sheep or whatever, the only way they're drawing the tag is if everybody else dies, you know, ahead of them. So, yeah, I really think that uh, at some point, all states need to um, eliminate bonus points on their trophy species just because there's not enough tags to go and clean those bonus point levels out to where that system works.
1: Yeah. That has to be just an inevitable truth, right? I think it's going to happen at some point. They're going to wipe them out. Yeah. The creep is just crazy. But then it's like, what do you do with the guy who has, you know, 18 years worth of history there? Right. Right. It's an, it's an unfortunate
0: you know, reality, but eventually that dude's going to die. So, yeah. I mean, that's, right. that's the, you know, how rare these tags are, you know, I don't know how many Idaho gives out, but I would, I would guess it's on the order of maybe 50 bighorn sheep tags in the state. So, and so I, you know, my strategy for, for drawing sheep tags because they are so hard to get is just to put in for the easiest units to draw. Typically mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm not, looking for a trophy ram or I wasn't, um, I was just looking for an opportunity to go hunt. And so I was putting in for, you know, Idaho has a couple of units that have reasonably good, um, draw odds, especially for residents because, um, and it's primarily because the units are so remote and, you know, vast wilderness and logistically difficult to hunt. Um, you know, most people should probably go with an outfitter, um, unless they're, you know, extremely competent as a backcountry hunter and, um, you know, maybe have access to horses and or an extremely strong backpacker. So, um, but I was chasing those units and, and just, you know, wanting the opportunity to, to, to go hunt. So
1: Yeah. So what kind of odds are we talking about for those, you know, the, the better odds units that you've been applying for? What, what are some of those examples of numbers? And obviously they change year to year, but to give right, us an idea. right.
0: Yeah, there's always you know, it's always uh, you know, a big part of the, the springtime hunt planning is is, you know, um keeping track of the draw odds and the units and putting in for various states. You know, I put in for pretty much every western state and there's a lot of guys out there that do. And it's it's an expensive uh proposition and you know, I don't recommend it to everybody. It's not the only way to, you know, go have fun out there hunting. There's a lot of awesome over the counter tags. But anyway, um, you know, some of the best units, uh, odds-wise, in Idaho for bighorn sheep have odds like, you know, one in five, one in four, but they also have harvest success rates of, you know, ten to fifteen to seventeen percent um, because they're just so difficult, and the sheep are so hard to find, and the country is so vast. There's no roads. You know, these are these are in the largest contiguous wilderness areas in the lower 48, the Frank Church and and uh frank church wilderness and, uh, and that connects to the you know the selway bitterroot wilderness in places so i mean these these wilderness areas are just vast and huge and, and daunting um it's not like the sheep are in one spot they can move and you know there could be several places where they're at or they just might not be there year to year so it makes them damn tough to hunt
1: you mentioned you were doing this as a, a non-resident years ago and obviously we have non-residents listening to this what are like what can they expect as a non-resident do you feel like it's worth you know pursuing these days compared to what it was 15 years ago type thing
0: I still think Idaho is your best chance to draw a sheep or goat or a moose tag in the United States as a non-resident it's just very expensive because Idaho makes non-residents front the entire um tag fee up front and you have to buy a license too which for non-resident i think is about 138 or 148 dollars i used to know that but i'm living back in state obviously so haven't bought a non-resident license in about 10 years but um so it's still a good option um, if you know those trophy species are you know what what motivates you or you you know you really want to uh get a a sheep or a moose or a goat at some point. And I think, you know, sheep is really the one that I would recommend if you know you have to chase something, one of those, that's the smart one to go after first because in reality you can you can pick up a, a mountain goat hunt in Alaska or in British Columbia for so much cheaper than you can ever buy a sheep hunt. Um you can get a goat hunt on a cancellation for you know, six or seven thousand dollars. And that sounds that's a lot of money, don't get me wrong. But compared to a sheep hunt, you're spending thirty to fifty thousand dollars to go sheep hunting. Um for a lot of them. I mean doll sheep is a little bit cheaper, but to go Rocky Mountain sheep hunting in Alberta, which is pretty much the only place you could do it, or maybe BC, uh that's a fifty thousand dollar hunt. You know, forty to fifty grand. Um, you know, and, and stone sheep is, is similarly expensive, you know, it starts at about 30 grand and, and, uh, desert sheep are ungodly expensive too. They go from, you know, 35 to $60,000, you know, down in Mexico, which is basically the only place you can go buy one of those. So, um, so sheep is the hard one you know you can go mountain goat hunting you can go moose hunting in canada you can go moose hunting in alaska you know with an outfitter or whatever and and do those things but sheep you just can't you know most people don't have the means to go buy a sheep tag and, and do an outfitted hunt for that so yeah for sure if uh i mean that's that's the one thing i would probably chase first and foremost if you want to get into the the mountain hunting species and there and there's some good odds for goat and some great odds for moose in Idaho and places you know those hunts aren't always easy they're going to be tough for various reasons you know uh, maybe lower populations or you know remote country or whatever but um, you know it's all a cool opportunity to to be able to to uh, have straight up odds on on those kind of hunts
1: yeah yeah so you put in with a partner as well. So is that an actual group application you guys are applying together?
0: It was, and I never do that. Um, so we put in for the uh, a section of the Frank Church Wilderness, which is unit twenty seven, and it's it's typically historically the the unit that has the best odds in Idaho because it's the most remote, has the worst success, it's you know, yada yada. There's and there's they usually break it up into four sections and the the area that we put in for, uh, had been producing the best circumference and length measurements. Um, and the, and the harvest success was decent. It was usually hovering around 50 to 50%. So it was a little better than the rest of unit 27 or it had been tracking that way. And, um, so the odds weren't quite as good, but, and I knew about, a. Giant ram that got killed in there the year before, and apparently I wasn't the only one because the odds were running about nine percent, is what uh, historically they'd been. And at the last minute, I don't know why. It was mainly probably just because I want. I figured if I put my buddy in with me, we had to draw. There was three tags available. We had to draw the first or the second. And so it really only not if we drew the third tag, we would have got booted out because. Obviously, we'd have had, you know, two permits to fill. Mm -hmm. That would have meant four, and they would have booted us out and went to the next draw application. So it was only if we drew the last permit that it was going to really hurt our odds. And so I figured instead of 9%, we'd have more like a 6% chance of drawing, you know, if things held the way that they had been. Well, lo and behold, a bunch of people found out about the big ram that got killed, and the odds were way worse but uh, we ended up drawing the tag and it was kind of weird because I had this hunch that we were going to draw because I was like the only person in Montana last year that didn't draw a combo license. And I found that out before the sheep, and, and goat and moose results came out in Idaho. And I'm like, well, that's, that's God telling me that I'm drawing a sheep tag this year. <laughs> I had to be yeah. there's no other way that I could be that freaking unlucky. That's you know? great. So I just, I just planted that seed because I was, I was pissed because all my buddies drew for Montana, uh, for our annual deer hunt that we do over there. And it's a, it's a blast. I I love that hunt. We do it every year. And it's, like I said, it's pretty much a guaranteed deal, but I put in for the, uh, the full combo license over there in Montana because I wanted to get the bo- the elk bonus points. And, uh, lo and behold, they changed their system last year. So, um, uh, I wouldn't have needed the combo license to do that. I could have got the deer combo, but yeah. long story short, I didn't draw and I was really super bummed. And I think that was my way of coping with it, it was like, well, I guess I'm drawing my sheep tag. And I just decided right then and there that we were going to draw. And, and uh, I was on my way to uh, a long-range rifle shoot down in Utah, a PRS shoot. And I saw an email from one of the – I don't remember it was Hunt and Fool or Epic or somebody shot an email out saying that the Idaho draw results were out. So I'm driving down the freeway, and I'm like, "Yeah, it's not traffic-y. I'll look it up. And, and uh, lo and behold, it's like success. And, dude, I about drove off the road, <laughs> tried to double-check it, reloaded it a couple of times. And <laughs> uh-huh. Kurt was over in uh, – he was actually in Africa because it was summertime. That's when they do the hunting over in Africa. And he'd gone with a buddy of mine, and they were over uh, over there. So it was probably – it was really pretty late at night. I think that time difference is about nine or nine or ten hours in South Africa. But anyway – I called him up and they had just gone to bed and, and uh, he, he called me right back. Uh, so you're kidding me, right? I mean, he couldn't believe it. I said, no. So he got our other buddy back out of bed and they partied half the night away, I guess, <laughs> drink, drinking to our draw success and talking about the hunt and uh, all that. So it was kind of a fun celebration half a world away.
1: Yeah. Wow. So what was the, obviously there's so much elation, right? But I'm just curious, like, when did it first hit you of like, I need to blank? Like, what, like, what is the first kind of maybe bit of overwhelm or just like, I need to prepare, I need to figure what out, what was the most kind of difficult thing after the elation?
0: Uh, That's definitely, I mean, a ton of things start going through your mind, like, uh, you know, what kind of, what kind of gear am I going to need? You know, do I need anything different there? Um, you know, I, I knew right away I was going to have to be in phenomenal shape. Just the country is, you know, unbelievably steep. It's super unforgiving. Um, and it's so vast that, uh, you have to be a hundred percent self-reliant and confident in your ability to, you know, get in there and out of there on your own without help because help is you know, forever away. I mean, if you, you you know, screw up or bonk or, you know, nobody's coming, you know, nobody's ever going to find you if, if you can't take care of yourself and at least get to help or notify help. So, I mean, I literally, uh, I saw probably two people like the entire time we were hunting and that was just on the trails, you know, like packers and stuff that were well, we saw a few more than that on the on the on the main trails because there was a packer that we ran into a couple of different times as he was ferrying materials down to uh i think the forest service and fishing and game were doing some crop cooperative work down on the middle and the salmon and he was ferrying stuff back and forth and there was a couple people um on that main trail but actually up in um you know off of that main trail, we we ran into one other guy, and he was an outfitter that was had a couple of elk hunters, and that was like the only people we saw.
1: So, had you been in that area of the Frank at all? Like, did you know what you were getting into from a terrain perspective?
0: Uh, I had been. You know, around that country. And then I spent time, I floated Hell's Canyon and I knew the Middle Fork was similar geographically, or I mean, uh, you know, geologically and whatnot. And then, um, you know, I've been around that country, but I had not spent any time um, in that particular area um, of the Frank Church. I'd been real close to it. And then I've always, there's an area that I've always, wanted an excuse to go backpack and i've been wanting to go uh, visit the bighorn crags for years because uh, it's just incredible country and it's it's you know it's a journey just to get there off of the pavement um you know from like the chalice area it's like a two and a half hour drive just to get into the trailhead on dirt um, to get into the bighorn crags and stuff so i've been i'd actually applied for that unit for for uh, sheep and i think i applied for for goat once or twice also it's funny i watch the odds you know so some years like um you know the goat odds it tends to fluctuate and if you can get on the right side of that sine wave you know predict which years the goat odds are going to be good which years they're not people tend to react to last year's information so Mm -hmm. you know if the odds are really good in the unit a bunch of people will jump in there and then that uh, that unit will be bad odds next year and the one that was that was terrible odds last year will be better odds. So if you see a pattern like that, that's gone, you know, been consistent for the last six or seven years, you can start to predict it and do the opposite mm-hmm. and, uh, improve your odds sometimes by doing that. But so that's kind of one strategy I was using. Um,
1: yeah, that's a good too. But, uh,
0: but yeah, that, I, that country had always just intrigued me. And, and, uh, so I was looking forward to the challenge.
1: Yeah. So in some areas of the Frank, you know, guys will fly in. Um, guys will sometimes maybe fly in and then take a boat down to other areas. It, was everything yeah. you were doing just packing, uh, pack packing, and hiking in all foot travel?
0: It was. We we actually planned on floating. Um, my my hunting partner is a very experienced whitewater rafter and. Uh, we floated Hell's Canyon together and he's done quite a bit of stuff, but he hadn't done the middle fork. One of his best friends, uh, rafting buddies has floated the middle fork a bunch and actually helped several guys on the, 27 dash one sheep hunt. And, um, so he was kind of the one, one of the guys that was one of our big allies and resources, um, as we'd put in over the years and we'd been putting in for that easiest to draw unit. And, uh, it was just, this year that, that I decided to switch, switch it up and try it. And we'd, you know, we'd put in for that unit six or seven times and it's supposed to be one in four, one in five odds and just never drawn, just been unlucky. And we hadn't put in together. We were just putting in individually. It's like, how unlucky are we? But, um. And then finally, we used a baller luck last year when I put in for the the better piece of that unit. This section of Unit 27 that we hunted has a little bit better road access to get to some of the trails, so it's probably one of the reasons it has a little worse draw odds than the other sections of Unit 27. And uh, had it not been for the you know the the trophy quality being slightly better, also, um, I wouldn't have put in for it. But, but I had a hunch, and for whatever reason, we went with it. And um, we planned on doing some floating originally because of my buddy's capability to uh, to raft. He's, he's an experienced whitewater rafter. But uh, in interviewing former hunters that had hunted the unit and uh, an outfitter or two and some backcountry pilots, as well as— um, Every river after I could get a hold of, it didn't sound like there was really uh, very good number of rams down on the river, so we didn't end up doing that. And then, in this section of Unit Twenty Seven, there really aren't any um, backcountry airstrips up high, which uh, is kind of a unique thing for guys that are listening in Idaho's wilderness areas. Is uh, like the Frank Church was dedicated in nineteen eighty four, and There were several backcountry airstrips uh, within that wilderness boundary that are still active today. They were grandfathered in. And so that's one of the ways that hunters to this day still are able to access some of these deep, remote, you know, wilderness sections that would be a, you know, 10 or 12 day horseback ride to get to um, literally uh, riding, you know, that far. But they can fly into these areas. But there's strips down all along the river that we probably would have used had we had we done the, the uh, whitewater rafting option, but we didn't end up using either. So, so all
1: that would essentially just put you too low to start
0: with. Yeah, and climbing out of that hole, I mean the the river level there is uh, probably forty, I don't, know, probably around four thousand feet. So it's pretty low. And then, you know, we're hunting clear up to 10,000 feet. So when you got 6,000 feet to come out of the river, you know, to get up to the high stuff, it's brutal. And some of it is so steep. Um, it's 3,500 feet in the first, you know, less than a mile right off the river. I mean, it is, you know, ungodly steep. I mean, you can fly through the middle fork on Google earth or whatever. And, It'll give you some idea what it looks like, but it, it's it's difficult to uh, gain perspective of what it's, you know, how brutal it really is yeah. <laughs> until you're there. <laughs> so what, what are the season dates for this tag? Um, they ran, I believe, September 1st through October 13th were the dates thereabouts. It might have been August 30th through the 13th or something like that. But yeah, but thereabouts. I know it ended on, yeah, I'm pretty sure it ended on the 13th okay last year and
1: so when was the first time you made a scouting trip into this country
0: so right after i found out that i had drawn i'd have to look back at actual dates but it had to be uh middle of june when i found out and like the next week we had a, a family trip planned um we actually went over to europe for two weeks and it was killing me. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I just drew a sheep tag and I'm, you know, so off to, off know, to Europe. Just, yeah. So every morning during that trip, I was getting up, uh, early before everybody else. And I'd load as much water bottles and all this other kind of stuff in my camera backpack. Cause I kind of, I enjoy photography and stuff. And I always pack around a bunch of camera gear. Well, I'd dump all the camera gear out of it, and load it up with water bottles and everything else. And, head into wherever we were and find the biggest set of stairs I could find or the biggest hill I could find and and start bombing stairs in the morning and then come back and shower up. And then we would do our daily, you know, whatever on vacation after that. So yeah, I, I still started my training, but it was, uh, it was hard not being able to scout. You know, I was thinking I was missing out on, on that, but, um, scouting actually turned out to be more of a, I don't know. Getting to know the country better because we we didn't see a single shooter ram in probably ten or twelve days of scouting that we spent. So mm. uh, in hindsight, I didn't miss too much by uh, by not being able to scout. But it was at least I was able to you know start working out and building the leg muscles that I was going to need for the rest of the hunt.
1: Do you feel like you know that time of year? Let's say you did scout mid June are the Rams going to be in a different area than they will be when season opens there in September? Um, I mean, is there any sort of movement and over that time frame?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to say for sure, but I think mid June was probably too early. There was still probably quite a bit of snow in places and, and water in the, and at least in most of the Frank church is at a premium. Um, it's super dry country, and that's one of the big challenges as a backpacker in there is, you get up high on some of these ridges, and there is very little water to be able to access, and that's you know the, probably the biggest challenge is being able to pack enough water around and and uh, locate water up high because there's just not a lot of springs, and certain years there's you know you can find a snowbank. I talked to a couple of guys that. You know, I looking back through the years on Google Earth, I'd see some snow banks up there in like August and, and September and then talked to one guy. He's like, yeah, one year I went with a buddy and was able to cool my quarters out on a snow bank. We got our water from that. And then, he, then this guy had gone back three or four years later when his buddies had drawn. And then he said that year it was just bone dry and he felt like they were going to die of dehydration in the same location. So that's always a huge challenge up there. And, and, um, so it's tough to say whether, you know, yeah your scouting is really going to tell you where the Rams are going to be. But if, if you find a bunch or something like that, they're probably not going to be too far. Right. You know, they can always go down to the bottom of the drainages and, and drink there. I mean, for Ram to go up and down a couple thousand feet in a day is, no big deal for us to camp in the bottom and try to hike up to them every day is a little bit different, but yeah, it's probably the, the smart, smarter way to hunt. That is probably to camp in the bottom and then, uh, hike up the opposite sides and kind of glass across. And then, then at least on a daily basis, you've got water back in the bottom. You just have to be willing to climb up and down quite a bit, but that's kind of the name of the game.
1: Yeah. So you weren't necessarily discouraged that in, 12 or however many days of scouting you weren't turning up too much in terms of shooters
0: it was discouraging but one of the the big issues was uh forest fires actually locked us out of a big chunk of the unit like the probably according to the harvest data um which i did a public information request from fish and game and requested their um harvest reports that actually uh, specify like which drainages the sheep were killed in. So that's one thing I'd recommend to anybody that draws a sheep or goat tag is contact fishing game and see if they'll provide the information from those harvest reports because they'll tell you you know it was killed in such and such creek or it was killed on such and such mountain. and, and that gives you some areas to to start with. I mean, that information is not necessarily golden um for instance you know there's an outfitter that had worked in this section of the unit for years and he'd taken you know probably 80 percent of the rams out of there i don't know if i was in that position if i would be telling people exactly where i was killing the rams Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know that's his livelihood self-reported data yeah right right but in general it's going to show you some trends and um and then from talking to people that had previously hunted it, you know, I got a list of people from hunting and fool. And then when people found out I drew on Facebook, I had people contact me and said, Hey, you know, I drew this, yada, yada. So we had, we had some information to go off of, which was, which was helpful. The problem was we couldn't scout any of it because the roads were closed, um, uh, by force service until we actually drove way around, um, a much longer route to get in there for opening day. And that was the day that they opened the road for service. So we, we took a long circuitous route because the signage wasn't really updated yet, but the yeah. road was open and we managed to get in there. Uh, we were going, whether they were letting us or not, we were, <laughs> we were going. So, um, but yeah, that, that probably, you know, the, mentally that was probably the toughest thing was not being able to scout where you really wanted to. and, but we saw we saw a lot of sheep, just no shooter rams. And you know, almost any veteran sheep hunter, the first thing they'll tell you, well, if you're if you're seeing ewes and lambs, you're in the wrong place. So don't get you know too excited when you see that. But you know, we saw a lot of great country. Um, you know, fell in love with a couple of areas that just looked you know super sheepy. And some people had killed rams in those areas, but I'll be damned if we could find them. You know, they're just they blend like no other animal I've ever, you know, been around. But we had, you know, I had a 95 millimeter Swarovski BTX that I packed, you know, over a hundred miles through that country. And it was worth every ounce because, you know, I knew after I'd blast the hell out of some of this country, whether there was rams there or not, or at least whether they were out or not.
1: So, mm-hmm.
0: but it was discouraging.
1: Yeah. What a, what does uh, sheepy country look like? Like what are some of those traits that you're kind of looking for or just were drawn to?
0: Um, you know, they there's no doubt they like the rough stuff, but um you know, certain cliffy patterns and you know, we'd studied a lot of pictures from other guys and and talked to, you know, uh, the outfitter and whatnot about kind of what to look for and cliff formations and you know they do tend to like the north faces because that country that country gets really hot and i mentioned it was dry but it gets really hot in the summertime in some of those canyons that's there's very little um actual timber there's there's patches of timber here and there uh, but there's so much rock in those um, river canyons and they're so steep that once they heat up in the middle of the day it's like an oven in there and they just kind of radiate heat off the sides. And, you know, so any, any places where the sheep can kind of escape that heat is, is uh, preferable to them. And, and a lot of people had told us that uh, they like the big open rocky slopes, but if there's timber available um, they also like to be able to disappear into the shade if, if that's there. So we were kind of looking for those mixes of areas and, and also just going off the data that we had as, you know, drainages and whatnot and trying to pick out the sheepiest areas in those. And and then we used Google Earth pretty extensively, or I did. I mean, I spent hours and hours and freaking days on Google Earth just looking for sheep trails and, and, and whatnot that you could see in the in the rock and, and uh, knowing that that would help us identify, you know, areas of activity. You know, we didn't know if it was – winter activity or summer activity or spring but it was areas to check so we had a ton of waypoints and different stuff to to look at
1: i guess where those trails are in that country like at that elevation in that area if you're seeing game trails you're it's a pretty safe bet it's sheep i mean there's not much else up there
0: yeah for for the most part i mean you could see migration trails down lower like on the major creek drainages you could kind of kind of pinpoint those they were always heavier and you know you'd be like okay well that's you know we're we're getting down too close to the creeks that's probably primarily elk and deer traveling um but when you get into the mid elevations where the country's just gnarly and you know and even up toward the tops you know they 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 tend to hang in the probably the middle third of the mountain is their favorite or the kind of the upper two-thirds but um so that's, that's more typical sheep country. And when you get into stuff that's just too wicked for deer and elk, you pretty much know that that's either sheep or, or mountain goats. And there was actually a fair number of goats in that area too. And some of the trails that, you know, we had seen were probably more mountain goat. We kind of figured out that the difference, even though they do, you know, they definitely cross over and use a lot of the same habitat, the, there's a little bit of difference in what they like. The sheep kind of preferred a little more open and and the the goats kind of preferred more like shoots and and more cliffy stuff uh the sheep like cliffs but they also like big open uh rocky talus slopes and stuff
1: so so as we get closer today you have let's let's just ballpark and call it six weeks for your tag right um yeah were you prepared to have like all six weeks set aside? Did you have work commitments? Like what did the logistics of putting time into this hunt look like for you? Yeah,
0: I had, I mean, I had a lot of work commitments. Um, I worked for an electrical contractor in Boise and we're super busy. I had projects going and, and I knew that uh, I wasn't going to be able to string together, you know, like the entire hunt by any means, but I knew I'd be able to string together a week here maybe be back a week, take another week, or uh, at least get a couple of good extended hunts in there. I thought at the most I would probably be able to take 20 out of the twenty days out of uh, probably that six-week period. So I was prepared to do that, and I ended up doing that and a little bit more Um just
1: because we had to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so between scouting and the hunt itself, you had what was it, like thirty-five days or something in that country. Yes,
0: it's thirty-three to thirty-five days was kind of what we put back together yeah. uh, after we were kind of tallying it up. So, right. and probably about uh, we figured ten of that was scouting. Most of that was, you know, two to. I think we did one trip that was four days, and then we had. Uh, two three-day trips in there also. So Mm -hmm. three-day weekends that we made out of it.
1: So So with that much time uh, in the field and then in that type of country, I mean, you mentioned before when I kind of asked about what what are some of the first things going through your mind and your questioning gear and things like that. What are some things that you did do different for this hunt um, or that you found didn't work well or that that worked exceptionally well? So this could be anything from footwear to clothes to optics to food any of that like just all those logistics gear that type yeah. of stuff
0: yeah you pretty much when you when you know you're going to be spending you know a tremendous amount of time with a backpack on and, and rough country you pretty much do a mental inventory of everything in your kit and um steve knows i i got a hold of him right away i wasn't real happy with my backpack situation so i went to exo and and uh got a new 3500 which i absolutely love and and uh, definitely made my life a little bit easier i was kind of in between packs i'd run a certain pack for a while and then i um, got some gear from another company and and they didn't really have a good backcountry pack but i hadn't done you know a a real hardcore backpack uh, type hunt for probably the last two years so it wasn't a factor. I just was mainly day packing, you know? And, um, so when this popped up, I needed something better that was better suited to carry super heavy loads, potentially out of uh, precarious spots. You know, you kill a Ram in the middle of one of these mountains and getting it off is, is pretty brutal. So you need a, you need a pack that carries awesome and, and, uh, allow you to, to haul a lot of weight. So I went XO on that. um, boots um i had two pairs of of Kinetrek boots um one of them was pretty beat but super comfy and the other one i had just had resold and it, it kind of needed broke in again but i just started wearing both of those pretty consistently switching them up and and uh ended up needing both of them through the course of the hunt um finally got the ones with the new soles broke in good enough to wear uh they weren't hurting my feet toward the end of the hunt. And when we really needed it, when uh, we had snow and slick conditions, that's when the tread on the sole got to be really important. Yeah.
1: I was going to ask why you, why you needed both. Was that cause they were different styles and like one's insulated ones, not, or.
0: No, they're both. My feet run cold. So I, I wear insulated the 400 gram insulated kinatrix um, regardless of the hunt. Um, but the one set was just really well broke in, so they were they were great for putting on, you know, a ton of miles. But they weren't quite as as stiff, and and the soles weren't in quite as good a shape as the other ones. And and I just happened to, and and the uh, the the comfy set also started leaking a little bit toward the end of the hunt, and then uh, that's when the other ones kind of came into their own and and helped me finish the hunt. Gotcha.
1: When you're breaking in the the new sold ones, do you have anything to do other than slap them on and go hike?
0: That's about it, you know. Yeah. Maybe get them wet, you know, up front, and and uh, just hike in them. That's just. I think the main issue was that probably I had got them wet several times, and I'm not I'm not one to baby my boots. I tend to treat them like crap, and so they mm-hmm. they crack and ended up, you know, not. Not being in as good a shape as they should be, but, um, those ones had shrunk up a little bit. So they were just a little small on my foot. And so it was just a matter, you know, yeah. putting on a load and, and wearing them enough to, to kind of get, either get my foot broke back into the boot or, or a little bit of both, break the boot back in. But, um, yeah, gotcha. but, and then I lightened up my gear a little bit. I, I bought a, a little Kuyu one man tent. Um which was a, which was awesome from a weight standpoint, but, um, it's a single wall shelter. And, you know, once it started getting colder, um, I didn't really, uh, like that as much because condensation became an issue and I knew it would, it was just a matter of time. So, um, so then Kurt and I started using just a, a two man tent that we'd split the load on one that I've had forever. I mean, I started backpack hunting in the late eighties. So I bought this tent when I was in college. So probably was like 94, 95. Um, oh, and I've had it forever. It's still pretty, pretty lightweight. Um, and, uh, did the job. We've had it on a ton of hunts, so it just wasn't as light as the Kuyu setup. set up. Yeah. And then the optics, man, I, I, you know, I actually gave my uh, Swarovski spotting scope to a friend of mine up in Alaska that had done a lot of favors for me and whatnot. And he was starting an outfitting business. And, and so I gave him my uh, 80 millimeter Swarovski several years ago. He took his, he, you know, that was the least I could do for him. And um, so I'd been basically just borrowing my buddy Kurtz for a while. And um, we both had 15s and, kind of trade back and forth on the spotting scope. But before this one, I was like, we need, we both need scopes, obviously. So I went and, and uh, got a Swarovski BTX, which is unbelievable piece of glass. I, I'm so glad I picked that thing up. It's, it was, uh, it's huge and not really fun to pack around, at least with a 95 millimeter objective on it, but it's not tremendously heavy. It looks like it would be, but, um, but man, optically, it's, it's fricking unbelievable. <laughs> so, and then I borrowed a killer tripod from a buddy of mine, um, Erickson plot. He's a PRS shooter that I had uh, shot with and he's, he's a gear nut and I hit him up and was like, Hey man, I, I actually had ordered a really right stuff tripod. They're super expensive, but super stable. And I was going to use it kind of a double duty for, for, uh, shooting And, you know, a super stable tripod to, to mount that big piece of glass on that 95 millimeter scope. And, uh, but I couldn't get one because really right stuff was moving their offices from California to Utah and they weren't shipping anything. And so I borrowed his, it's like a $1,300 tripod with the head on it and stuff that would, you know, I could clamp a rifle in and, uh, but he was gracious enough to let me borrow that and, Scratch it up and fill it full of sand and
1: <laughs> put it to work.
0: I, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, uh, I felt bad. I I got him a gift certificate for a local shooting store when I was done, but I probably still owe him owe him more. <laughs> <laughs> I put some miles on that beast, but yeah. So those are the kind of the main things that that I was concerned about. Everything else, I, you know, I guess I was good to go.
1: What did you do with food? Uh What did you find that worked? Well, I'm just, you know, when you do a trip that long, two things. One is you, you can just get tired of stuff easily and not want to eat. And yeah. then two is you realize how important food is to, like, recovery-wise, to, like, have the energy to keep going, especially in that type of country for that long.
0: I actually listened to some of your guys' podcasts because, you know, I hadn't been doing super hardcore backcountry um you know, backpack hunting in recent years. I mean, I always spend a lot of nights in a tent and, you know, do some hard hunting, but I hadn't been on, you know, a super intense wilderness adventure where I might, you know, backpack 50 or 60 miles and, you know, with a load on um, in recent times. So I I got out and did some research and some of your podcasts are really helpful on that. And just like your hundred miler or your, what do you call them? Your exo-extreme yeah, the death um, hike. Uh, death, hike. Yeah. death hike. That's it. Yeah. You know, so I listened to some of that information and and um, you know, kind of how you guys had modified some of your eating and you know, going on the the two hour cycles and whatnot, and uh, really adapted some of those principles to what we were doing. Um, but we still used a lot of dehydrated food and whatnot um, because those meals are just they're filling and and they you know they're not particularly heavy. Um, we were trying to camp by water when we could, so we didn't necessarily have to pack water for them all the time. There were certain times when we were backpacked up high that, you know, that was a bit of a liability and we changed up our food, um, situation a little bit, but, um, you know, I just, I tried to mix it up because like you said, you do get really tired of stuff. So, you know, there's certain. Uh, mountain house meals that I, I really never want to see again in my life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I freaking, I think I ate every, you know, every one that there was at least once. And some of them, I just can't do anymore. Yeah. Like stroganoff. I'm over it. Never again. <laughs> well, I do a stroganoff, but chili Mac, you know, that's, that's a go-to. It's a good staple. There's a new, there's a new chicken and rice. That's, that's pretty good. And it's man. It's, You got to really want it to be able to eat a whole, you know, two person serving of that. So, but, uh, we used a lot of, um, you know, high, uh, basically sugar stuff, you know, to drive energy when we were actually backpacking and, and climbing and, and doing that, um, uh, you know, meal bars, protein bars, you know, all that kind of stuff too, but tried to use the protein more on the recovery end kind of at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I packed dry protein powder, kind of built some shakes off of, um, I think it was Brady, uh, shoot. I can't remember Brady's name from, uh, oh, Brady, Go, Brady yeah. Miller. Yeah. He did a kind of a stoveless meal plan and I couldn't stomach that, entirely but he had some really good ideas for packing a bunch of calories with the kind of the protein shake thing that he was doing so I did a little bit of that and that I think was was huge getting massive amounts of protein after a couple of just real death march situations that we we were in and being able to recover and and go hard the next day after some of those I felt like that was really good just to be able to get a massive amount of calories and protein and and, uh, you know, be able to just drink that down and Mm -hmm. at the end of a gnarly day and recover, so.
1: getting into the hunt. Um, Man, I'm sure we could talk for another 45 plus minutes (laughs) just about that, but um, to kind of cut to some of the action, within the first several days, uh, you guys had some luck, found some rams, and uh, your partner was able to connect. So kind of lead us up to that and kind of give us the story there.
0: Yeah, so um, starting out, Kurt was able to get out of town a little before I was. So he, he bombed into that, uh, this area that we weren't able to scout, uh, because of the fire closure and he got in there backpacked down and we had, um, in reach communication back and forth. So he could send me messages and whatnot. And so two other friends of ours that we hunt with quite a bit, uh, came, uh, and we met in chalice and then we rendezvoused with kurt he'd been in there for like i said two days and and he actually found some sheep so <clears throat> we went up the next day and did some more glass and and um finally and, and found a pretty nice ram and decided to go after him the next morning uh so we got up at o' dark 30 uh, across the river not the middle fork but another um tributary crossed the river and, and headed up the mountain and uh we had buddies across the way glass and kind of kind of watching things giving us hand signals and whatnot and um we got up really high to where we should have been able to see him and and of course they vanished. um we'd already hiked 2500 feet straight up and um uh, so it was just a matter of, you know, well, let's keep going. You know, we're this high. it's uh, you know, keep powering on. And so we're doing like the death hike thing, you know, power for two hours, stop and rest, you know, get some calories in us and then go again, you know, glassing and, and just picking this country apart. And we finally get toward the end of the day. And, and, uh, you know, there's times where he's pushing me a little bit and I'm pushing him a little bit and it's, kind of the last little area. I'm like, well, we've made it this far. Let's finish this out. Cause we were getting cliffed up toward the end of this big basin. I'm like, I don't know where they could be. You know, I mean, we've been everywhere. They just dropped off in a hole somewhere and, you know, bedded down. So we get all the way back up into this and, and, uh, it's getting a little bit hairy and I'm like, this is goat country. You know, we're not going to s- probably see them in here, but just about dead ended. And I heard a rock roll. I'm like, that's got to be goats. And so we just kind of sat down right there. I mean, literally, we couldn't have gone 200 more yards; we'd have been cliffed up. But there was a couple shoots we wanted to look down, you know. So, and we were sitting there, and all of a sudden, I see a ram head pop up like 80 yards away, and uh, I was shocked. I'm like, I can't believe I left my bow in the bottom of the canyon 3500 feet below us (laughs) because kurt brought a rifle he was you know you know all up to this point we had never even seen a shooter ram you know and all the scouting and whatnot so he'd already pretty much said you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna kill ram and the bow's gonna stay in camp and i had been planning on packing my bow but that morning when we took off it was you know he spotted this ram found these sheep it was all about him so I left, you know, almost everything that was going to be extra weight because I was planning on going up there, killing a Ram, phoning it out, packing it out, you know, always best late plans, but hindsight, I should have probably packed a little more gear. Um, cause it's almost, I don't know, we've probably got three hours of light left, maybe, um, probably two and a half. And, um, anyway, these Rams start popping up and after a while we finally got uh a good visual on all of them and i was able to pick out the best one of course he was hiding and and uh took forever but he finally offered up a shot and i told kurt to take it and we had a little debate because there was a, a ram that was probably prettier he flared out and he had you know good um kind of the cool looking tips and and maybe a little bit more curl but the other ram was quite a bit more massive, and if if you know anything about scoring sheep or you know antelope or anything, mass is really keying on them. So we had a little bit of a stare down and an argument and a whisper argument. I'm like, no, do not shoot that one. You know, he's like, I I like that one. Of like the other one's way bigger, and uh, so finally he he presented a shot and and Kurt pounded him and that ram just instantly hit the dirt and rolled out of sight. And so we had a few high fives, but, <clears throat> you know, until, until you know what's down that shoot, you don't get very excited because, you know, we had no idea where, you know, how far he might've rolled or, you know, if there was cliffs down there or whatever. Cause we could just see the top end of that shoot. So we made our way across and, and uh, luckily found the Ram balled up and uh, some little Jack pines had caught him. And so he only rolled about probably 40 yards and uh, pretty excited. Um, Incredibly emotional, actually, because, you know, we'd already just put a ton of effort into this thing and and been dreaming about it for all these years. And just, you know, watching, watching him put his hands on that sheet, it was, I don't know, it's just crazy until you've done it. I guess you can't.
1: Yeah, the phrase "a dream come true is a cliche until you experience something like that, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was was something else. and, And just being able to, you know, those high fives and hugs were, you know, a level. You know, we've killed I don't know how much stuff together, but just nothing ever felt like that before so it was it was pretty cool so we got pictures taken and and um you know started going to work on this thing and you know before you know it it's it's getting dark on us and it's pretty obvious we're not coming off of this brutally steep just treacherous mountain um at any time without uh you know putting ourselves in danger so we've got uh gotta go find a flat spot and lay down on the mountain
1: so spent the night what what gear did you have with you you said you were light so how, how did it go spending the night on the mountain
0: we're super light um i had basically a backpack um enough food for one day um a jacket um yeah that was about it some game <laughs> bags you know knife that kind of stuff so the uh thought of spending the night wasn't real, uh, a decision that was lightly taken. Yeah. Um, but we knew that trying to go out was going to be just foolish. Uh, there was a couple of times on the way up where we were just looking at this slope going, can you even believe that we're standing on this? I mean, it's <laughs> like, if we slip and fall, I don't know when we're stopping, um, you know, or what kind of shape we'd be in when we did, but it's just, you know, unbelievable country. So, going out in the dark, just, you know, especially with a load on, would have been completely foolish. So, we found a reasonably flat spot, um, and we're pretty wiped just from, you know, the exertion of climbing up, you know, over 3,500 vertical feet. Um, So, we were were pretty wiped from the whole situation. Um, Didn't get much sleep through the night. Luckily, it was fairly warm. Um, So, uh, I guess... You know, that that helped, but um, very little sleep and probably not enough food or water really to, to end up where we did. But we climbed probably twice as high as where we originally had seen those rams. And, you know, that was just uh, hindsight. I definitely would have packed quite a bit more water, quite a bit more food. I probably should have thrown in a sleeping bag for the extra, you know, three pounds that it would have been. Mm -hmm. And we probably both would have been super comfortable had I, had we done that, but you know, best laid plans, you're thinking everything's going to work out Mm -hmm. and go exactly as expected. And and it just doesn't. So anyway, we got, we got the meat packed over and, and, uh, managed to sleep through, you know, part of the night, uh, when the sun started coming up, we headed over to a little patch of sun that was coming through early. It was about a hundred and. 120 yards away and so we're sitting there in the sun just kind of getting rid of the chill and and uh, I heard something over by the meat. we headed back over probably 10 minutes later and uh, a bear had been there and torn quarters down and started chewing on one of them and Uh obviously he he ran off when when we came over there luckily but um, yeah it was interesting to think about how close he'd been you know sitting to us all night because we'd only walked away for you know 45 minutes or something like that and he was already on the (laughs) meat. wow but there's a lot of predators in there and a lot of bears that's just you know something we're used to seeing yeah we saw we saw more black bears in the in our time scouting than we saw rams Hmm. so there's there's a ton of bears but very little other game
1: so you're running a lot of snakes up there surprisingly
0: no i mean we ran across a few like garter snakes and stuff on the oh. on the trail but um surprisingly we didn't run into any rattlers like i was expecting it and i was really okay. concerned about it because i always i've got my uh, little tracking dog that always goes with us oh, so i was yeah. pretty concerned about rattlesnakes and whatnot but um luck, we lucked out there mm. but uh so anyway we got you know geared up and and uh, headed out that, net, that next morning as early as we could. I think we had a little bit of meat to finish boning out because we packed. Um, and Kurt had to run back and grab the, the cape and the head back at the carcass. But it was only a quarter mile away or whatever. So we got up and going, probably headed down the mountain at about 8 o'clock. And we're making pretty good time. And then about, uh, it was 2 o'clock or so, we had about 1,000 feet to go. And I just bonked, man. I just ran out of calories, started getting dizzy, um, you know, just feeling super crummy, I had to, you know, continue to sit down and just take breaks and try to get the breath in me and just feeling terrible. And finally it's like, Kurt, do you have any more of those jolly ranchers down the bottom of your pack? And he starts digging and he pulls out a couple jolly ranchers. <laughs> and that, that little sugar boost was, was like a lifesaver. Cause, uh, once that sugar hit me, I was able to get my crap back together and, and get off the mountain. Then our two buddies met us at the bottom and, and got some water and, and more food in us. But, um, yeah, should have, uh. Should have had a little more foresight going up that mountain and, and had in mind kind of worst case scenario rather than best case. But I guess that's one of those stories that you learn from. But, yeah, it was <clears throat> it was pretty intense.
1: Man, I, I gosh, I wish we had another hour to hear more about this, because we're only a little bit into it. But just to oh, – man, I hate to do this, but to hit fast forward, you had mentioned to me you stopped packing your bow – after on day 20 yeah. for you as you continued to hunt. Um, was that just because you weren't, you didn't feel like you're going to be able to get into bow range?
0: Yeah. I mean, we, we hunted pretty, we kept hunting pretty hard for another, I don't know, another 15 days or so after we got perch ram and had yet to see another ram. So, It got to the point where I really didn't, you know, I didn't think I was going to have enough opportunities to give me uh, a reasonable chance of being successful with the bow. I mean, it's kind of naive to think that your first stock or first opportunity with a bow is is going to be a, you know, a killing opportunity. It just doesn't typically happen. Mm -hmm. It does happen, but I. I think you're a little bit foolish to, to expect it. And so with the lack of opportunity, I, I felt like it was time to to uh, go ahead and pack the rifle. And so uh, I switched and just started packing the rifle at that point. And, and we did a, <clears throat> a pretty long through hike um, from one trailhead on uh, one side of the unit. It was a five-hour drive in between the two trailheads. Uh, it was kind of a big circuitous loop, you know, but, uh, and it was about a 30 mile backpack through and went through a bunch of good high country. And so we did that backpacking trip and, you know, hunted our butts off class and all this awesome, just killer country and uh, still no rams and was um, hiking out on the last day. It was on a Sunday and it had started snowing and sleeting that morning. And, um, we made it quite a ways down and we started, you know, losing a bunch of elevation heading down to the trailhead and, and, uh, kind of the fog blew off the top. And I looked back up in this high basin and and there's a, a ram shining, uh, just lit up by the sun, little like sucker hole, you know, and boom, lights up this ram and we get some glass on him. And I'm like, sure enough, man, that's a, that's a ram. And he is up where we just came from and we've already dropped like 2000 feet and we're on our way out. And it's, you know, Sunday, I got to be at work on Monday kind of deal. And it's like, dude, I'm, I'm going back. So, um, the fog blew in and and we were trying to get a better look and, you know, we sat there for a little while and I was just like, I got to go. I mean, if it opens up again and I can see him, I need to be up there so I can shoot him not down here where I can, judge them and decide whether or not i want them. so you know i'll judge him from up there through the scope so we had an eye bomb back up in there as fast as i could um, through the rain and it started raining pretty good and and uh heading across this uh hillside and i earlier in the hunt um going through some brushy stuff i had i had a a cover over my barrel keep moisture out of it and you know whatever else debris and stuff that falls in there, and and uh, at some point I had lost it. And in the rain, I, I kind of had that in the back of my mind because I'd recently read an article about a guy that had missed a an antelope at relatively close range, uh, and and he attributed it to his barrel being wet. So he we went back and tested it, and sure enough, you know a wet barrel was causing accuracy issues. So I had this in the back of my mind, and I was like, man, I'd do anything for a dry patch and a cleaning rod right now to just give me a little more confidence but i was like yeah you know it hasn't been raining and snowing that hard you know we'll be all right but i make this long circuitous stock and and get up in there and and uh loam behold, the clouds part and i find a hole in this you know sea of uh lodgepole pine on this wicked steep hillside that i'm going across and I finally just find this perfect little slot where I can lay down prone on the side of this mountain, get get leveled out. Um, it's going to be a, just a perfect shooting opportunity. The shot's fairly long, but uh, it was like 500 yards right on the nose. It was a very comfortable range for me, um, having shot a lot of long-range uh, competitions and uh, knowing the capabilities of my rifle. It was just, you know, to me, that was a that was 100% shot you know I, I wasn't worried about making it there was very little wind um that morning so got all leveled out uh found a, the best ram in the group um dead broadside ranged dope you know wind, everything's calculated uh crosshairs are perfect i have an awesome rest i'm actually shooting left-handed because of the i'm a right-hander but i was shooting left-handed because the slope was steep off the right side so i couldn't get above the rifle um, but i'm very comfortable shooting with my offhand side just from some of the stuff that i have to do in competition so i was you know perfectly comfortable with that made an absolutely perfect execution boom and nothing happened the ram walked off and disappeared down in the timber and was gone i'm like there's no way (laughs) (laughs) what happened um and then eventually i saw the group there was five rams i saw them around the other side of the basin and they all five of them strung across there and um didn't look hurt you know the one ram at the last he he bailed off down kind of lower than the other ones and i was like there's just there's a chance you know i mean maybe there was another ram maybe i hit him he just wasn't hit good so i bailed down in that basin and, and you know hiked all over uh that area where i'd last seen him and then i hiked up to where i had shot at him and there wasn't a spot of nothing no blood no hair no not i completely missed him and that was crushing yeah that was tough Oh, uh, i can imagine <laughs> i at that point it was probably the lowest point and i was like you know people get hooked on sheep hunting and i was like sheep hunting is stupid <laughs> 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 I, I have put so much into this and you know it's just you know kicked oh, in the balls basically yeah yeah but i, mean, oh. I oh, go ahead
1: no i was just saying i've you know like blown opportunities after five or six days and it's not even a sheep that I've waited years to draw. It's like an over the counter tag. And it's funny how you put so much into it. And then even just being out there, even like after five or six days, like I think your emotional state is a little bit different just from, you know, being gone and putting all the long days in. So I can't like, that doesn't even come close to relating to being, you know, this many days into a hunt like that. So like yeah, I can only imagine.
0: Yeah. And, and not knowing her, you know, assuming as hard as it's been to find a Ram up to this point that that was probably your one and only chance, buddy. And you just blew it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I had the weight of that on me. And then obviously, um, I'm still a long ways from, from being home and, uh, ended up having to spend an extra night. I mean, we had, uh, we got into chalice that night at about midnight or whatever. So there was, and still had to go get, my razor at the other end of the trail system. So had a long time to think about it on the way home. And, and, you know, my only solace was, you know, Hey, I, I did everything right. It was just a failure in the weapon. You know, I I made a shot, I made the stock, you know, I did everything right. You know, there's just sometimes when things don't go your way and you can't beat yourself up about it. You just got to motivate from, those items, you know. I should have figured out a way, tied something over that barrel, you know. I'll never make that mistake again. Um but Is, uh, So so I learned something.
1: Slapping a piece of electrical tape over that a good solution.
0: It's a perfect solution. Perfect just solution. bring just bring extra, you know, in case it peels yeah. off or whatever. Um bring extra and that's what I used on the next go around. You know, I had a little sleeve, kind of a rubber uh, balloon over it before and when that went away I didn't have anything to replace it with but I had electrical tape with me the rest of the hunt <clears throat> so and I tested that at the range it does not impact your point of impact at all or it doesn't change your point of impact at all have an electrical tape on the barrel so um, and I went and checked the rifle afterwards too because I thought well you know it's you know Backpack twelve days with it in rough country, set the you know rifle up and down, and strapped it on the pack, and you know, you never know. So I checked it, and of course the rifle shot good when I got back, and and so that wasn't the issue. It had to be the just the moisture in the barrel. Um, so back at it we went, and we we had another. I think the last five or six days of the hunt we were gonna we were taking off, and uh, I was just gonna do a bonsai loop around as much country as I possibly could. And we started where, uh, down the drainage that where Kurt had killed his ram, we were going to hit the middle fork and then we're going to come back up another drainage and do like a, a 50, 55 mile loop in five days. And, um, we headed down to where he had shot his ram on and, and, uh, we were about three miles apart and we had climbed up about 1500 feet on the opposite side and we're glassing across, and uh, Kurt found a ram again um, at about, about 4 in the afternoon. And so uh, it was maybe just enough time where I could burn across, get up there, and, and get a long shot at this ram uh, before dark. And so I did. I just hauled ass, uh, dumped my, everything out of my backpack because we were still traveling down to our first campsite. dumped all my gear out grabbed what i needed uh barefooted across this river uh, slapped my boots back on burned up the other side and i got within i think it was like 550 yards of this ram and he was a dandy and um, it was super steep uphill and it was just getting last light and I know in my heart of hearts, I probably could have squeezed the trigger and probably would have killed him, but the, the light was just low enough to where I didn't feel a hundred percent confident that I could see every little branch and twig that might be sticking out between he and I, because kind of, he was going in and out of some burned timber. And I thought back to what it felt like when I'd blown that other opportunity. And I was like, just be patient. You'll get another chance at this guy, you know? And uh, so I didn't take the shot that night and that was kind of a bummer, but I felt good about it because I knew what the consequence was. If I missed, it was, you know, good chance that would have been the last opportunity.
2: Yeah. Man, what a call.
1: Like it would be so easy to go. This is the last opportunity I had. Like it'd be easy to think that way and then push it, you know, and not make a wise decision.
0: Yeah. It would have been, it would have been a hell of a lot tougher had that been like the last night of the hunt. Yeah, You know, I'm not, not sure, you know, if I could have made the same decision at that point, but you know, it wasn't something where I was really thought I would, I would wound him. It was, it was either I was going to drill him or, or I was going to miss him completely. And I knew if I missed completely, I'd never see him again because they don't, they're not, uh, when, when they, when sheep get spooked, they freaking leave the county i mean they're not you're not going to find them in the next drainage the next day man it's you know you might see them in two weeks when they get back to that spot but oh wow. so they boogie um so i you know hiked off the mountain in the dark again uh down some of the same stuff where kurt and i had packed his sheep you know just you know wicked nasty country but got back to camp um made a plan cause I, I hadn't spooked them or anything. So it was just, you know, Hey, well, I'm going to head up there in the morning, um, be looking over that basin from a good spot when the, when it starts cracking light and, you know, put them down. So that was what I did the next morning, made the almost exact same loop headed up, headed up in there. And, uh, lo and behold, sun starts cresting and there's no sheep in the basin. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. You know, they don't, typically move that much at night right i mean who could walk around in the dark in this country <laughs> <laughs> and uh kurt was across the canyon and i'm glassing back to him trying to get some information and he's just giving me the you know the arms up i don't know you know no sheep you know he can't see him anywhere so uh it's almost like a replay of his hunt and i'm like well there's one way to go and it's up you know i can't see everything around me but so I start climbing and a ewe and a lamb pop over into the basin and pin me down for like three or four hours. And I'm just dead. I can't, I can't leave because I'm kind of right in the gut of this basin and they're up kind of in the head of it and I have no cover per se. So I just have to kind of hang out, which wasn't a bad tactic because I thought at any time, potentially that ram could, those rams could come back over and, and I might get a shot, but uh, it was kind of a helpless feeling cause I can feel the time ticking by it's the second to last day of the hunt at this point And, and, you know, time's ticking, time's ticking. Um, but finally the ewe and the lamb fed out and over the top. And, and so I was able to keep going and just started popping up over and, and glassing country again. And, and, um, it got to be damn near evening again. And I, I, I crested a top of. Um, this point where I could see across a big saddle and then another face and I finally picked up the Rams and uh, that was a good feeling Um, knowing that, you know, I am going to get another chance. I've got, you know, two hours until dark and I'm already in range. I just need to be patient and wait for a good shot and make sure this, this one counts. Um, So Kurt, Kurt was able to watch the whole thing from across the Canyon. Cause about that same time he was at, a, he was at a pretty high elevation looking across, but he's still looking up a long ways at me. And then finally these Rams cleared the Ridge. So he could see like me and the Rams in the same spotting scope view. So it was pretty cool visual for him to see this thing all go down. And, um, uh, finally, looked over all the rams for probably half an hour and the biggest one never would show. And, you know, it's starting to get later and later. And, and uh, finally I decided that the, the second biggest one was, was good enough. I wasn't going to risk, um, you know, another, another day or waiting another day. And the wind was getting a little bit twitchy uh, starting to blow their way a little bit. And I didn't know, you know, that other ram could have been, hundred yards below me down just where I couldn't see. So I made the decision to go ahead and take the, the best one. He was 316 yards and, um, kind of the same scenario as the last one. I got a dead perfect rest, put the crosshairs where they needed to be. And, and, uh, he, he folded up at the shot and, and slid down the mountain. And, uh, yeah, the emotions poured out again in a big way, um, but it was it was pretty tremendous. After the highs and the lows and the and the effort to uh, be able to stand over that that sheep and put my hands on them was was pretty incredible.
1: So how uh, how far out are you from from a rig at this point?
0: From a rig, what are you talking
1: about? Oh, so how far do you got to pack them out?
0: Oh geez, um, so it was. I'm probably about 2,800 feet above the creek and I've got, uh, about an hour and a half of daylight. So I pretty much knew right then it was going to be, um, I was just going to gut him, uh, get him opened up and cooled out. And then, uh, we'd go up together in the morning and, and go get him. So, um, so yeah, I had to go back to camp that night and then make that long climb up there again and then hike off with them in the morning but then our our camp was about seven miles from the rig
1: okay
0: so we had a seven mile backpack uphill um <laughs> after we got him down to the bottom we had to you know hike seven miles uphill back with with that ram so okay. <laughs> but, but yeah. it wasn't it was fairly uneventful other than uh it snowed a little bit that night and of course uh, made things pretty treacherous but uh, somehow or other we uh we got down safe. I, I did put some, some, uh, serious abuse on my, uh, XO, uh, hunting, uh, what do you call them? Walking sticks.
1: Oh, uh, those nice. carbon fiber on sticks. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Those <laughs> things saved my butt, dude. They were <laughs> awesome. They took some <laughs> hellacious abuse. And toward the yeah. end, I finally did. Uh, the right I lost the, the carbide tip off one. Oh, okay. and it, and it, uh, yeah, pretty much chewed through the plastic just because there's so much rock and, and whatnot. Right. But, right. but dude, those those poles saved my life so many times. I mean, there were so many times where I thought, I can't believe I didn't just break those.
1: Right. <laughs> that thing, that thing,
0: man, how did that not break just now? So uh, thank awesome. God for those uh, yeah. hiking sticks. They were really awesome and, and saved my bacon a bunch.
1: So I'm just curious – having you know being months removed from this and even telling this story again how do you look back at this hunt now like in terms of memories and meaning and all that and that might be hard to put into words but does anything come to mind
0: man it's it's always tough Uh, my opinion of the hunt changed multiple times as like through the season you know i was super looking forward to it um there was times during the hunt where I just absolutely hated it. (laughs) I was like, this was dumb. You know, I gotta hate this country, you know, (laughs) but when you're getting your ass kicked, you know, it's easy to get down. And then, you know, at the end after doing it, you know, I was like, man, I would, I would not even want to go back here with one of my friends if he drew the tag and, and now six months removed or whatever. Um, I hope one of my friends draws that again because we're going to go, we're going to go, you know, just kick that mountain's ass. Um, you know, that's, I think that's how our memory works. You know, those, yeah. those times that really test us, we may despise it at some level while we're doing it or just, you know, hate the grind. But when you look back at the accomplishment, um, you know, there's this, this warm, fuzzy glow around those memories that makes, you want to do it again. And, you know, the, the, just the reward, um, the accomplishment and all that changes your perspective after time. So.
1: Awesome. Man. Yeah. So true. Difficult times, but then, yeah, there's just, there's just something about pushing yourself in that way for sure. Yeah.
0: It's not a hunt that yeah. I would really recommend to, to, uh, most people, you know, you really gotta want, uh, to be challenged. Uh, in a, in a big way that I think in order to be successful on that hunt, if you know that you're going to probably get your ass kicked every which way, but Sunday, and it's going to come down, I, for some reason, I, I always had pictured it coming down to the bloody end. I knew I was going to, you know, it was going to take forever and, and I was going to be tested and that's pretty much what I got. And if that's what you're, you know, if you're okay with that kind of battle and, and you have the time and, and, um. What not to put into it, then you know, have at it, but uh, or you know, you know if you want a badass backcountry hunt and you've got 11,000 bucks, you can go hire an outfitter to take you in there too. So, hmm. I mean, there's a couple of different ways to look at it, and I, I mean, after you scout it for uh, 10, 12 days and and haven't seen a ram, that starts sounding like a pretty good option, that starts right. sounding yeah. pretty cheap, pretty well spent, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, there you have it, guys. I hope that you uh, tuned in and stayed in for that whole episode. Man, a long one, but so much good information in there. Uh, And just super inspiring stuff to go do difficult things and make your uh, dream adventures happen. So be sure to uh, tune in next week. We'll have more to come. Hit that subscribe button if you haven't yet already. And if you have any questions, comments, anything like that, shoot us an email to podcast at xomountaingear.com.